know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are extremely excited to have Professor Howard Schwaber back on the pod. Professor Schwaber is well known to many of our listeners and has won multiple awards for teaching and research throughout his career. Professor Schwaber has a JD and a PhD and teaches many of the constitutional law courses here at UW. We last talked to Professor Schwaber in February on the impeachment trial of President Trump and his acquittal. Today, we are extremely excited to talk to Professor Schwaber about everything to do with the Amy Coney Barrett nomination fight and looming confirmation vote. There's so much to talk about today, so let's get started. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schwaber. Well, my pleasure. Um, we want to jump right into the obvious news of the day and, you know, especially pertaining to your education and your research and teaching interests. So returning right to the Supreme Court, as a constitutional scholar, what has your reaction been to the extremely partisan way that this um, Supreme Court fight is playing out in, you know, how the uh, hearings have just finished up in the Senate Judiciary Committee and the full Senate is moving towards uh, this looming vote? So what has your reaction been as a constitutional scholar? Sure. Um, so, you know, you framed the question as a constitutional scholar. And I have to say, my reaction in that role is different from my reaction as kind of just a, an ordinary observer of politics. Uh, as an ordinary observer of politics, you know, I, I share the same observations that I think everyone does, uh, that this feels wildly hypocritical on the, on, on the part of the Republicans after the way they dealt with Merrick Garland. Uh, this feels like bad faith. Uh, that certainly it's allowed by the rules, but it seems to be breaking longstanding norms uh, behavior in the Senate. And, and certainly one of the things we've seen throughout the Trump administration is this uh, practice, particularly from the Republican side, of trampling on norms without necessarily breaking formal rules in a way that many of us, both political scientists and otherwise, uh, feel really undermined the 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 ethos or, or or the operating principles of the system and there's a word forbearance there's a nice book called how democracies die and the authors look around the world and, and one of the things that they find it's a very old idea it just happens to be mentioned in a recent book um, is that you know if you game the system to its limits the system will not survive right there are rules but then there are also norms and there are expectations that everybody will refrain from taking advantage of playing what's sometimes called constitutional hardball uh, to the absolute limit. Uh, and that's true in anything. If you, if you, uh, you know, game the limits of a sport to its limits, the next year the league will change the rules of the sport uh, in order to deal with the fact that you've been gaming with them in the way that you have. Right? So this is not a new observation, but in the context of democratic politics, small d, sorry, <laughs> democratic politics, it's particularly important, and it's sort of the big lesson of the last four years. But you asked me as a constitutional scholar, and I actually have a very different view in that regard. Uh, not that I think it's better. To me, what is the most striking thing about this is that the Republicans' explanation for their actions points to something quite real and quite profound, but not nearly sufficiently understood. The Republican Party's position, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is their publicly stated position, which they consider entirely legitimate, uh, and, and again, it's certainly within the rules, whether or not it's within some set of, you know, norms, is that if the same party controls the Senate and the presidency, then there's no particular role for the Senate to check the president. The institutional ideas of checks and balances that in the, in the classic Madisonian vision, uh, the ambitions of the members of each branch would motivate them to counteract the other branches have completely uh, and this is sort of the final nail in the coffin, I think, have completely been wiped away by the notion that one's, uh, one's not just one's allegiance, one's political identity and political role is defined by one's party rather than by the branch of government in which one serves. And to me, 
right? This is, as I said, the final nail in the coffin. You can point to this going back 60 or 70 years easily. You can point to this going back to 1790, if you like. Uh, um, uh, in, 18, you know, in, in the 1830s, the Democratic Party of Jackson was publishing a journal that said it is essential to the survival of the Union that the Democratic Party retain the presidency. Once you've said that, uh, right, you, you've kind of, partisanship is no longer an alien concept. So, you know, you can't say this is historically new, but in the modern era, uh, at least since the 1930s, I don't think there's been a time when at that fundamental structural level, not just about how people behave or what motivates them or, or, or how they identify, but the actual structural system of government is now based on party rather than on the separation of branches or to a large extent on federalism. Even federal state relations and the rules of federal state relations are very much being subordinated to party. And you see that in lots of ways, but one of the most recent ones this week is the Trump administration's refusal to give fire aid to California, which would have been thought unthinkable as recently as four or five years ago, because this particular kind of aid is usually what's called ministerial. It's automatic. Um, you can imagine a governor you know, asking for aid for a tornado that never happened or something like that. You, you need some sort of truly bizarre narrative to explain why this kind of aid request is turned down. Trump's explanation is, well, it's a blue state. And, and again, this is not about partisanship because we've always had partisanship. And it's not about how people motivate their political behavior uh, because people are complicated and make lots of different decisions. But it is about the idea, and I keep coming back to this, that the structure of separation of powers and federalism, the actual structural elements of the constitutional system uh, have become part of partisanship along with policy questions, along with self-identification, along with geographical self-definition and so many other things. And to me, that's as a, as a constitutional scholar, that's what's so striking about these hearings. And this is the first time I know of, or maybe these two events, both this week, the fire aid and this hearing, that I've heard senior members of a political establishment say this out loud as a justifying principle. I mean, interestingly, I, I know this is a long answer, but I want to share with you, I'm on a listserv of constitutional law types. Geeks is not probably not too strong a word. Um, and it was really interesting that there was an argument on the listserv among constitutional law professors at law schools, who are the, that's who this listserv is for, sorry. Uh, and somebody, without thinking about it, wrote, well, you know, the, the president represents the people who voted for him. And of course, that's exactly not the American model of representation. That's exactly, you know, I thought that was a beautiful and unthinking and unintentional articulation of the how completely we have abandoned this. And I keep emphasizing this point, but I want the structural premises, not the attitudes, not the norms, the actual the structural premises that define our constitutional system of government. And so that's what I see this week. Uh, and that's the part I'm by far and away most worried about. With that structure, is that a bug or a feature of the system or of the structure? Oh, it's entirely a bug. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's been a lot of talk in the last, oh, 10 years about Hungary. So in Hungary, for people who don't happen to be following constitutional crises in Hungary, I mean, I assume everyone does, but just in case, uh, the Fidesz party led by Urban, won an election, and then they were able by ordinary legislation to undo what we think of as constitutional structures because their constitutional system was not entrenched. That is, there wasn't this difficult amendment process. It could be changed by ordinary legislation. So any time one party held both houses of parliament and the presidency, they could abolish political parties, shut down the free press, uh, impose martial law, do all sorts of things, which they did. Uh, and this is regarded as one of the major failures of what was a promising democratic constitution in Europe. Okay, so take the American case. Uh, our system is a lot more entrenched than that, but it turns out not enough because it turns out the bug of the system is if you play hardball, you can wreck our system just like they can wreck theirs. Now, there's a big debate in constitutional studies and especially people who do comparative constitutional studies so people who study Constitutional constitutions in different countries or, or failures or successes. And one of the really gigantic debates is how much does structure and formal text matter? If the players are not willing to abide by cultural norms of, of how the game is played, you know, can you design 
as Madison said you could. Was Madison right or was he just naive to think that you could, to, to borrow a, a term from Robert Putnam, that you could make democracy safe for the unvirtuous? Uh, I would argue that he was wrong. And I would argue that the bug in our system is that it is vulnerable to being gained. I would argue there's a further bug that our system is more vulnerable than it needs to be. Uh, things like the filibuster and the way the games around the filibuster have been played. Things like the way we run our elections, the absence of any guarantees of voting rights in the Constitution or democratic rights in general in our Constitution. Right? There, there are a lot of places where um, we could have done more. We could yet do more to secure ourselves against the risks of, of constitutional hardball. Uh, the phrase belongs to Jack Balkan, by the way. I should give credit where it's due. Uh, um, you know, there are more things we could do to guard us, our, our, ourselves against those risks. Uh, so the, the, the bug of the feature is that it's not nearly as resistant as it could be to those kinds of forces. But ultimately, I'm not sure that's a solvable problem. I mean, at, yeah. a, certain point, at a certain point, if people are really willing to do anything, uh, then, then your democratic republic is just has failed. At least mm -hmm. that's, that's the danger. To follow up on that, it seems to me like the Democrats throughout this hearing and then also in their general messaging have really been trying to go after the Republican Party and Mitch McConnell in particular for what they're characterizing as a hypocritical power grab in the rush to confirm Barrett. But I don't really think that anyone is actually surprised by the Republicans' move here. And I think that it's kind of being conceptualized that the Republicans are fully aware that they're applying a double standard to the nominees of Republican and Democratic presidents, but have the power to do so in a way that benefits their political project, so they're going to do so anyway. So then the question I have from that is, A, do you see the Democrats actually being able to sway votes or attitudes based on this line of attack? Or, um, yeah, and then also do you, like, how do you... Are, does that concern you? You know, again, uh, the Republicans, Republican senators, and I, I, I've forgotten the name of one who I thought did a particularly good job of this, which is unfortunate because I, I, you know, I'd like to give him a shout out. Uh, do make an argument that what they're doing is not hypocritical. He, he pointed out that uh, only one out of 10 nominees in the situation of a split party control of Senate and presidency has been nominated over a 50-year period. Uh, that when the Senate and the presidency are held by the same party, there's a pattern of very fast confirmations and so on. I mean, their principled answer is that party really is the constitutional defining institutional framework. And as I say, I, I find that extraordinary. But but if you accept that assumption, uh, you know, then I don't think they feel that they're being particularly hypocritical. They feel they're being effective. They're playing the game better. Uh, they're, they're, they would freely concede they're playing a hardball. They would insist the Democrats also play hardball, and they would claim that they're better at it. And, you know, I'm not particularly prepared to say that they're wrong. There's kind of a long history of Republicans being better at this than Democrats for all sorts of reasons, um, not least of which is Roy Rogers' famous line, I don't belong to any organized political party, I'm a Democrat. The Republicans have always, going back to the 1970s, had just much better party discipline there are breaks. The Tea Party was a break. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, this is not a perfect, a perfect story, but they feel that they're just playing the game better. I don't think those punches are landing. I think you know you can divide the population into two groups: those who think that what the Republicans are doing is a cynical power grab. Uh, very few of whom are going to vote for Republican candidates anyway, and those who think what the Republicans are doing is just politics as usual, and they're just doing it well. And very few of them are going to vote for Democratic candidates anyway. Um, you know, I, I, I find it difficult to think that many votes will be changed. There are a couple of individual races. And now this is no longer a constitutional question. This is just raw politics. There are a couple of individual races where there could be some effect. I think Lindsey Graham uh, has paid hmm. a, a price because just because he used such extreme rhetoric the last time around, you know, use my words against me. By all means, if, if, if we get a, 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 an opening close to the election, you can be sure. Because he staked uh, such an ex a, uh, absolute position last time around, in, in the case of Merrick Garland, you know, that's coming back to haunt him. But it's not because of how they're handling the nomination. It's because of a perception of personal hypocrisy. So, yeah, there, and, and there are probably a couple of congressional races 
uh, where candidates have managed to weaken themselves. Um, you know, I know that Susan Collins has had to be very, very careful uh, about how she deals with this problem. But I don't think any, if any votes are changed, I don't think it's going to be because of a concern about uh, parties playing hardball or norms. It'll be personally about an individual candidate and how they've maybe misspoken or, or, or made themselves vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then with that acknowledgement, and then also touching on some of the things you were bringing up earlier with how some of these structural elements of our Constitution are becoming further aligned with uh, partisanship, are we headed towards a world where a president's Supreme Court nominations are only confirmed if their party also controls the Senate? Or even do we already live in that world? And then is this healthy for a democratic society or for the pursuit of justice? Yes and no. Uh, you know, I mean, those are very short answers, but I, I, I'm not really sure I can. When I'm teaching, I always say to my students, and I mean it, um, I consider my job to make questions more complicated rather than simpler. I, I can't think of a way to complicate these. Yes, we are absolutely headed, if we're not already there, to a, a, a place where only uh, uh, when the president and the Senate are of the same party will a nominee be confirmed. No, that is not healthy for a democracy. On the other hand, I think lots of things about our confirmation system are unhealthy for a democracy. Now, I'm intrigued by this discussion of court packing. And it's a little bit of a point of embarrassment for me because I've thought for years we should expand the court. I would like to see a 21-person court whose members don't sign opinions. I am exhausted by this focus on the one swing justice or formulating constitutional arguments based on one justice's biography or trying to appeal to their personal views. Uh, I think this has denatured the whole idea of legal and constitutional argumentation uh, for, for at least 30 or 40 years now. You know, I would like to see a much bigger court just to get rid of the uh, personalization, is, is one way to put it, of the entire process. The problem is saying that right now sounds like a partisan response to a specific situation. Um, so I'm in the embarrassing position of strongly favoring court packing, but being unwilling to say so in public, at least for another year or two, at which point I will go back to that position again. You know, I would prefer, he said something like, expanding a court in order to affect its ideology is an extreme measure. Uh, we saw that used in 1800. We saw it tried in the 19th, uh, 30s and President Roosevelt backed down, I would never consider anything like that except under the most dire of circumstances. I mean, something like that. And then and then dodge, which is effectively what he's saying, but he's saying it in Biden style in far fewer words. And, you know, I, I'm not sure, again, pure politics now, that he's coming across as articulating a thoughtful position as opposed to simply a slippery position. But that's a matter of style and delivery. I, I don't think there's a terrible risk that he'll suffer by comparison because Donald Trump will appear the deeper and more thoughtful and more philosophical thinker. I don't think that's Biden's biggest concern. I also favor term limits, by the way, but that's a whole different podcast. I was going to ask about term limits, but yeah, we can definitely cover that. In yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And for some of the same, um, um, you know, real quick. It's going to be the case that in one four-year term, Donald Trump will appoint three members of the Supreme Court. It's the case that other presidents have appointed no pre uh, justices to the Supreme Court. To the extent that the whole point of the president-senate combined confirmation process is supposed to create political checks against capture, as Madison would say, of the court, uh, that fact shows that the system, from a purely rules-of-the-game perspective, isn't working the way it's supposed to. Now I think it'd be kind of good to turn back towards the individuals involved in all of this, um, namely, obviously, Amy Coney Barrett and the late Justice Ginsburg. What are some notable aspects of Justice Ginsburg's career as a justice on the Supreme Court that you will, or that stick out to you, or major parts of her legacy, I guess? Uh, look, I mean, we're talking about a major figure uh, uh, in modern constitutional history. There isn't... I mean, I couldn't remotely begin to answer that question. I guess two things. Uh, one, like everyone else, of course, I'm cognizant of her lifelong commitment to a particular set of issues. Uh, and, and I have to say, you know, I'm not, in, as a general proposition, I don't love the idea 
that certain Supreme Court justices are devoted to certain particular issues. Justice Breyer is very well noted for his commitment to dealing with administrative law issues. And that's important. Administrative law issues come up before the court a lot. Uh, other justices are noted for their commitment to regulatory issues or federalism or whatever. Um, you know, this sort of goes back to my idea I'd rather have a 21 person court so all that would even out. Because what one is interested in, if one is much more interested in an area than the other members of a committee, of any kind of committee, you know, that colors the, the process. So Justice Ginsburg, um, I happen to approve of her area of interest, which was securing equal rights for women. Uh, and so I'm delighted to have that committee's operations influenced by that commitment and by that expertise, um, of course. And, and the second thing is, uh, I think, you know, the manner in which she couched constitutional arguments, I think, was highly admirable. She was an outstanding writer. Uh, she thought with great precision. Um, I did not always agree with what she wrote, but I cannot recall an instance in which I thought she was using a disingenuous argument or a false analogy uh, or wrote a sentence that she had not carefully tested and thought about before putting it down on paper. And there was none of the kind of game-playing, personal snark, jockeying, I, I, I don't mean to be harsh, but, you know, ego-boosting enterprises uh, that we see from a number of other justices. Uh, and I think, you know, that's a virtue that gets much less attention than our commitment to social justice. From an institutional perspective, it's not a less important virtue. I did meet her. I've, I've had, I had one extended conversation with her. Uh, I don't have any really good personal anecdotes. Um, pretty sure I could take her in a fight, but that's about that's about you know, but but not in an argument. Oh, yeah, only if I if I can ask, what just out of a point of curiosity, what did that conversation consist of? Do you remember what you talked oh, about? I, of course, I, I I was the co-chair of a conference that was held at the Supreme Court Historical Society. Um, on the occasion of, well, there were two things. It was a conference and it also marked the occasion of the Holmes Devices. I, I believe two more volumes of the Holmes papers were being, had been finished uh, and edited and were being presented to the library. Um, we all had dinner uh, in the court and as, as co-chair, I got to meet her and talk to her. Uh, we just talked about constitutionalism and, uh, in, in, in the broadest, the most casual terms. This was not a, you know, this is, this is not a, a, an academic interview or, or, or anything of that sort. Uh, made some polite chit chat about the people who were there, um, things of that nature. Nothing, no, nothing containing anything revelatory. I'm afraid. I can tell you that again, like everybody else, I found her warm, uh, incredibly patient, incredibly courteous, charming. She had a, a, the ability to remember people's names. I admire that because I lack it almost completely. Um, you know, all the all the stereotypical stories you've heard about her appear to be true. I've known clerks who work for her. All of those stories uh, seem to appear to be true. Thank you for sharing that. I really interesting and you know kind of humanizing in this in this moment where, and this kind of leads into what I want to ask next. But you know she's kind of considered a, a modern day icon for a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier. You know, regardless of the merits of justices committing themselves to a particular project, she more or less had a focus on equal rights for women and social justice in general. Uh, and that's given her a huge space in popular culture and on the court as well. But what I'm curious about is, do you think this iconic status is going to endure? I, I mean, will people still use the phrase notorious RBG in the year 2070? I probably not. Uh, how many of you remember that Byron White's nickname as a football player was Wizard? Um Byron White was a highly successful football player before he went off and became a lawyer and a judge. As a matter of fact, I believe he was all, I think he was all American. Uh, you know, I, I, I realize this is going to be uh, uh, an unpopular opinion. I enjoyed, I love Kate McKinnon's, uh, I love Kate McKinnon's comedy, period. Uh, I think she's just a genius. Uh, I once watched her doing a Russian peasant woman with a Russian person. And at the end of the routine, the Russian person turns to me and says, where is she from? Um, like, really wasn't sure she wasn't Russian. Uh, <clears throat> she's that good. And I loved her RBG characterization. That being said, the whole idea of Supreme Court justices as iconic cultural figures, I mean, in part, Ginsburg was raised as a counterweight to Scalia. Scalia had already become a cultural 
superhero for conservatives. And there was a feeling that, oh, look, here's this obvious pairing of a counter superhero for the liberals. Um, and I really am deeply suspicious of this valorization and personalization of Supreme Court justices. And let me put it to you this way, in most constitutional courts in the world, except for maybe Israel, and maybe in Australia, um, if you ask members of the public to name a member of the court, they couldn't. Uh, in most constitutional courts, justices don't sign their opinions. That sounds trivial, but what it means is there's, no, there's none of this business of making your legacy. The Scalia Doctrine, the Ginsburg Doctrine, the, whatever it is, the Kagan Doctrine. I, it doesn't matter whom we're talking about. There's an intrinsic motivation and pressure to write a body of opinions that forms a legacy that is yours, right? Because of this authorial identification of the justices with their work product. Uh, and frankly, I dislike all of it. I like faceless bureaucrats working in cubicles in far off Washington, pushing numbers on making decisions that control all of our lives. This doesn't leave me perfectly in step with the political climate of the day, uh, but you know, that's, that's the price you pay for reaching a certain age. You've seen a lot of judicial fights. How much different is the Amy Coney Barrett one, you know, in terms of what you've seen in the judiciary hearings, especially? Sure. No, these were quite typical. I mean, this was, a, this was a return to normalcy. There's a reason Dianne Feinstein got up and thanked and hugged Lindsey Graham, you know, and, and okay, hugging him without wearing a mask was probably not a brilliant move from a public health perspective, but what she was thanking him for was the fact that this felt like a regular nomination hearing. And let's be clear, regular nomination hearings are events in which you learn nothing and which candidates decline to answer any question uh, that could be remotely interesting in terms of determining their future actions, in which 90% of the time what the senators are doing isn't asking questions. They're taking the opportunity to give little mini speeches. You know, so I'm not saying that an ordinary hearing is an edifying spectacle uh, or educative of the public, but this was normal. And after Kavanaugh, after the non-hearings of Garland, you know, even just the sense of a return to courtesy in the Senate, even that minimal return to the norms of normalcy, a, a phrase I think I'll start using from now on, uh, felt to the, to the senators as a huge relief. And I think it was a relief um, to a lot of us watching as well. It's boring. It's terrible television. Normals, the normal operations of government are terrible television. Try watching 24 hours of C-SPAN. I dare you. Uh, it's much more exciting to watch the Kavanaugh hearings. It's much more, think of a presidential debate, right? Trump is much more fun to watch uh, than an ordinary candidate who abides by the norms of a debate. But that's not the test of, of effectively functioning democratic government. So this hearing felt like a return to normalcy despite all the abnormalities surrounding it. Um, I take it as a little bit of a hopeful sign in that there seems to be something of a bipartisan appetite in the Senate, at least, for return to this kind of normalcy. And that all by itself could be a positive sign. I will say that if President Trump is reelected, I think that that uh, uh, return will be very short-lived. But that has to do with the interactions between Senate leadership and the president uh, and the question of party leadership. And that gets us on yet another podcast. Yes, indeed. There's only so much we can cover in, in uh, the limited time we have. But um, speaking of which, I, I want to own in a little bit more specifically on Judge Barrett. And were you able to gain any better or additional understandings of her judicial philosophy through this hearing or just gain any other insights? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, but that's partly because I think we have a pretty good idea of uh, what Judge Barrett is about already. I mean, part of the reason I didn't learn anything new is I already knew a fair amount. She's written, she's been a judge, she's been a, a, a relatively public figure, at least certainly in uh, conservative circles. Um, she'll be the first justice who didn't go to Harvard or Yale. She mentioned that, and I thought that was fine. Um, you know, I'm not sure saying that Notre Dame can teach the Ivy League about football necessarily works. Let's not forget that it was the University of Chicago who were the monsters of the Midway in 1910, 11, and 12. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're talking about the history of football, um, and, and once upon a time it was Harvard, if she's, uh, you know, uh, her personal biography is impressive, and I'm sure you all know it. 
She is self-described, and I think accurately, as an originalist in the mold of Scalia, although with some variations. Um, you know, I don't, I didn't hear any surprises or insights, partly because she was cagey enough not to answer the questions. To be fair, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I've just finished complimenting the proceedings as a return to normalcy. Let me now point out they're also an insult to the intelligence of every member of the public. Because it's an insult to our intelligence to think that she's going to fall for a question that's an obvious kind of trap question. Conversely, it's an insult to our intelligence when she says something like, oh, I've never thought about those things. You know, we remember uh, 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 there have been, been bunches of these. Uh, I'm trying to remember who was the justice who said, uh, he, I think it was Roberts, he had never thought about the question of abortion as a, as a constitutional issue. You know, which is a mind-boggling statement. Please don't quote me. I think it was Roberts, I'm not positive, but it was one of the relatively recent uh, uh, nomination hearings. You know, a mind-bogglingly dishonest statement, but it's the kind that you're supposed to make. The last nominee who answered questions honestly was Bork. Uh, some of his answers were bizarre, and for that and other reasons, uh, he ended up not getting the nomination, and everyone, I think, learned the lesson. Just play it very, very cool, and count on the fact that your party controls both the Senate and the White House, and you'll be fine. What do you think on some of these really high-profile cases, which ways do you think that Barrett would then rule or then slide towards? You know, of course, on some of these issues that she actively dodged questions on as, as well, including, of course, you know, the ACA and the Roe v. Wade precedent. Sure. The problem is, and this is something that is, uh, is a difficulty that members of the public and, some, and sometimes the media the members of Congress seem to have, for example, um, Judge Barrett has said in the past that she considered the Affordable Care Act uh, an unconstitutional exercise of authority that went too far, right? There's a case coming up testing the Affordable Care Act. Her opinion in this upcoming case is likely to turn on the question of severability. It would take me a little while to explain what severability is, how it applies in this case, what are the precedents about severability, what does it mean to be a, a Scalia-style originalist in terms of dealing with questions of severability, right? There's a whole set of questions and precedents and constitutional politics and constitutional philosophy on that specific question of severability. I'm sorry, for the audience, severability uh, means can you determine that one piece of a statutory scheme is unconstitutional? without ruling that the whole thing is unconstitutional. But that's a much, much more complicated question than that. And so if you're asking, how do I think a, a Justice Barrett would rule on the lawsuit from Texas about the ACA, the answer is, I have no idea because I have no idea how she will deal with the question of severability. If the question is about abortion, the issue doesn't really turn on whether one thinks the due process clause secures a right to a, a privacy that is broad enough to include the choice of abortion, the question turns on stare decisis. How strongly will this justice feel that she should uphold past precedents on which people have relied? And there's a whole complex body of arguments and theories and precedents about that. And she talked about them, but she talked about them in, as you'd expect, fairly non-responsive ways. You know, I thought it was striking. She said one thing that's completely non-contentious, but that Democrats jumped all over because of the context. It is completely non-contentious. It is completely what's the, banal to say that if a, a, a decision is really constitutionally wrong, then it is the duty of later courts to overturn it. There's no theory of stare decisis that says it's a moral obligation on the part of Supreme Court justices to uphold principles they believe to be fundamentally constitutionally wrong. Right? That would have been the argument for saying Brown cannot overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. Right? And nobody really said at the time of in 1954, well, there's this thing called Plessy versus Ferguson, stare decisis means you can't change your mind. Some people probably did, but it's one of those arguments that was given so little serious attention, we don't even hear about it anymore. Right? And that's something that's, it's completely non-contentious for her to say, look, just, I, I believe in stare decisis. I'm not going to tell you exactly what I think about it, although I've talked about it before. Uh, but certainly, if I conclude that a previous decision is, is, is a fundamental misreading of the Constitution, then it would be my job to uh, vote to overrule that decision. 
that's absolutely not only absolutely fine she's absolutely correct that that's a basic element of her job description and no one has ever disagreed the disagreement of course is what does or doesn't violate the constitution uh but that's you know that that's what happens we try and we, we sometimes try and bury the substantive question uh in in some procedural issue or vice versa and the reality is those two kinds of questions present themselves very differently which is one reason you know i don't think i learned anything uh about how justice barrett is likely to rule in a particular case or if there are some particular cases they're not the ones that we're thinking of yeah and then so kind of to follow up on that there's been we've seen actually a lot of criticism in Barrett in the press for not answering some of these hypothetical questions and whatnot. Is this given, you know, given all of your experience in law and academia, and especially I'm interested in your experience, um, both as a law school professor here, is this a legitimate excuse of Barrett to argue that not when I'm not given an actual case and I don't have the full facts in front of me, I can't speculate on a hypothetical case. It it sounds like from your argument so far that that is kind of a, a fair answer to give. But I don't know, say if there was like a 2L in law school who wouldn't pose like a hypothetical and made that answer, would that be considered a, a cop-out or would that be a legitimate answer? Well, no, for 2L is completely a cop-out. But look, I don't know whether it's a legitimate answer, but it's the one every nominee for the Supreme Court has given uh, for 30 years. Barrett was actually, I mean, to be honest, more evasive than most nominees. She refused to talk even about questions that she'd written articles about. That's a little unusual, but, you know, it's a very partisan environment. Uh, this is not a normal time. Uh, as Graham said at the beginning, no one in that hearing was going to change their vote. Uh, I thought it was sort of adorable when he said, look, we know what's going to happen here. All the Republicans are going to vote for, all the Democrats are going to vote against. I really thought that was kind of charming in a depraved sort of scary clown sort of way. Um, so, you know, is it legitimate? Look, a 2L isn't going to be called on five years later and say, aha, you said this in your answer in your con law class. Uh, therefore, we expect you to decide a case on that basis. It's really not the case that constitutional questions present themselves in neat hypotheticals. They present themselves in extraordinarily messy and complicated cases. It's one of the strange things about our system. We're almost the only constitutional court system in the world where we have this rule that you have to have a lawsuit with actual parties, with all kinds of complicated facts and money at stake or criminal penalty at stake. And right? that's the rule against advisory opinions. Almost everywhere else, if a legislature is thinking of doing something, they can go to their constitutional court and say, here's a law we're thinking of passing. Would it be constitutional? And if you think about it, that's a much more sensible and efficient way to determine things. As I always tell my students, because of our case-by-case -case approach, there are, imagine a, a, a mosaic with 10,000 pieces of which we have only 1,000. We're missing, there are huge blank areas where we just have no idea. The Supreme Court has never ruled on the Constitution. It's, it's incredibly easy to make up a hypothetical question uh, to which the answer is nobody knows. Would it be constitutional for President Trump to delay the election by two weeks on the grounds that COVID is an emergency? Answer, nobody knows. Which sounds like a kind of basic question in a way, right? So it's remarkable how often I end up saying nobody knows in response to what sound like really core question. So in that sense, uh, she's being quite fair um, uh, because unless she were to do something like overrule Roe versus Wade, that is, unless she were to vote for an absolute position, position, X is not a constitutionally protected right, right? Or Y is a constitutionally protected right. Short of those very rare instances, Decisions are couched in terms of outcomes specific to the case from which general principles have to be gleaned uh, by all the exercise of case reading and interpretation uh, that keeps people like me employed teaching constitutional law classes. In the time we have left, I kind of want to ask, what, you know, what happens when election results go to the courts? Or what happens when something, God forbid, gets all the way up to the Supreme Court? Thinking back to 2000 also with this, what does a contested election in the Supreme Court even look like in 2020? Well, as you say, I mean, we, we saw one in 2000, so we don't need to imagine it. 
Uh, I think this time around, it's, if it were to come to that, it would likely be different. I think it would be more likely to be a matter on multiple challenges across multiple states on things like qualifications of absentee ballots, uh, whether polls were closed while people were still waiting to vote, uh, whether there was racial discrimination involved in the application of voting rules. Uh, I mean, there are literally teams of lawyers for each party thinking up issues right now. I'm sure amongst them they can think of some things that I'm not going to think of right this minute that will, you know, uh, poll watchers. Donald Trump has called upon his followers to go and act as, as unlawful poll watchers. A group called Oath Keepers have said that they will do so armed. Okay, I can see about nine different ways that, that could go sideways and result in some kind of a court challenge. So, you know, I expect that election night uh, will include substantial disruptions, probably some instances of violence. Locusts and earthquakes are not out of the question. I mean, there, there is a non-zero, non-science fiction plausible scenario of really widespread disruption. Non-zero, I don't expect that. I expect a lot of breathless stories about minor disruption in different places, uh, but that in general, the process will go forward. And then if the outcome appears close, then yeah, I absolutely expect us to be in court, state courts, federal courts, all over the country, uh, with teams of lawyers deployed for you know, as long as it takes. I mean, don't forget, in 2000, we waited months, and the Republic survived. I'm not saying it was great. Uh, I recall vividly I hosted an election night party that night. I had a bunch of political scientists in my house, and it was all very professional and very serious until about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we still didn't know who'd won about 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the tequila came out, and after that, it was kind of downhill. But, you know, I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a tough night. But we can survive that. Uh, and we can survive court challenges. There are, you know, a whole bunch of scenarios. I mean, if you want to think about some interesting scenarios, what would happen if the state of Wisconsin, for example, if the legislature of the state of Wisconsin, which is controlled by Republicans, declared it had no faith in the ballot count in the state and therefore assumed the authority to appoint a slate of electors to support Donald Trump? Ask me what would happen then. What would happen then? Nobody knows. <laughs> I, I, I warned you about this. And there are many, I mean, some of these cases are already going forward. There's a case right now that goes back to one of the issues in Bush versus Gore. There were three justices in Bush versus Gore, Thomas Scalia um, uh, um, and Alito, I think, uh, who voted in favor of a proposition that when a legislature is dealing with national elections, it is no longer subject to the constitution of the state. It's become federalized. It's become a kind of a federal agency. Uh, and therefore no longer bound in that in that role by the decisions of the Supreme Court of the state. That proposition is being challenged right now in Pennsylvania. And I have to be honest, uh, um, in order even to explain that question would take me uh, most of a semester of introduction to the American Constitution. Just, just to explain the idea of a sovereign state legislature untethered from its own constitution for federal purposes because of the preemptive effect of the constitution on questions of election law. It's a great exam question though, hypothetically. It, it, it's hard for us to remember that 2000 was 20 years ago. That statement startles me and I'm the one who just said it. Uh, I mean, it's hard for us to remember that the, the, the two young men who are running this podcast probably have very little personal memory of those events. Which is yeah, which is, is 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 kind of startling for those of us of a certain, <clears throat> let's say, maturity. Um, one of the things that has changed dramatically is, of course, the media landscape. It really was still the case in two thousand that there were four or five channels that controlled the media message. There were more than that, but they weren't major players. Right? That's just not. That's obviously not true anymore. Uh, so the legitimacy that is conveyed by the media will differ by sector because different viewers watch different media. So I have there, you know, the Trump campaign has already, and Trump himself has already started spinning. If he loses, it's illegitimate. It was all caused by fraud. And I am certain that not all, but a substantial number of his supporters, which is running around 40% of the voting population, uh, will believe that. So, I mean, I take it as given that if President Trump loses this election or is declared to have lost this election, about 30% of the United States 
will believe that he was robbed. That's a big number. That's a big enough number uh, to cause all sorts of problems. If the election is close, that will make a difference, as opposed to if the election is a runaway win for Biden. If individual states are contested, uh, that will make a difference. Uh, if individual state legislatures disclaim the legitimacy of the results in their own states, that will make a difference. But all of that is why I say I expect disruption, and I actually, in fact, expect at least some instances of violence. I do. I think there will be protests. I think that there will be ballots burned. I think there might be, you know, but I don't expect revolution. And the reason is, um, or at least I think it's a, a slim likelihood or, 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 you know, widespread mass violence, uh, because while 30% is a lot, you know, it's not like all of those 30% will take to the streets all at once. And I do think that enough of the media, uh, including, for example, Fox News, which took great pains, you know, to announce Obama's win. And you recall the scene when Roe was saying that's wrong, and they walked him back to the tabulation room. You know, Fox, the Fox News division prides itself on being separate from the Fox editorial division. One of the interesting spectacles we could easily see is the Fox News decision declaring Biden has won and there's no sign of impropriety, followed immediately by a Fox editorialist saying this election was stolen. Um, I don't know what kind of whiplash that might give certain voters. But, you know, where I'm getting at is, um, again, I think there's a likelihood of some disruption, uh, but I don't think there's a major likelihood of the overall legitimacy of the election being called into question unless it is very, very close. If it is as close as 2000 was, that's a nightmare scenario. Because an election that close, with as little faith in legitimacy as we have now, and as little trust in institutions, including the media, as we have now, that becomes a re genuinely a recipe for widespread chaos. I, I, I don't think it's impossible that would be the outcome, even though I think it's unlikely. Are you hopeful about anything over the next several months or even years about American politics and its constitutional foundations? Um, only in the very general sense that I think the pendulums tend to swing. Um, so, all right. So, in order to answer that question, you know, I have to put a few uh, of my own opinions on the table. Not that I've been all that shy about articulating them, but for example, I think that the coalition that supports Donald Trump is a profoundly unwholesome one from this perspective of our national politics. Now, that's a whole long conversation, but let's assume for the moment, you know, that I can make that case. Well, I don't think it's a coalition that's particularly stable. I think it was a constellation of events and interests that brought that coalition together. I think it's already splintering to some extent, which is why he's having trouble in, in, in polls and in, in various places. You know, and I don't think it's the sort of uh, uh, coalition that exercises lasting power over a period of 30 or 40 or 50 years. It's entirely possible that what we broadly describe as conservatives or conservative Republicans or, right, uh, uh, will be dominant or at least a very powerful force in American politics for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. But that doesn't disturb me. I mean, I may approve or disapprove of, of what they would do uh, but it doesn't seem to me to threaten the foundation of our constitutional system in the way that the Trump coalition, to my mind, really does. It, is, it has always been the case. And I'll, I'll give this a number, even though it's obviously you know, pulled out of the air. I'm going to say it has always been the case that 30% of the American population were fundamentally unliberal in the philosophical sense. Um... Uh, uh, tribalistic, uh, anti-democratic, and triumphalist. I would say at least that number. That's always been the case. It's very rare that that 30% manages to connect up with enough other pieces to reach 50% and become, or in this case, 40% plus a fractured opposition, um, to become an effective you know, political force. It's also conversely very rare that mainstream uh, coalitions are able to adopt that 30% because they're tough to adopt. They're not being on compromise. 
they're not big on pragmatism. Uh, uh, they tend to be true believers in the things that they truly believe in. What and those things vary. This is not a monolithic group by any means. So in my view, it's always been a matter, uh, you know, of hoping we can get sixty percent to control thirty percent, while ten percent wander around and don't pay attention, or 60% of participants to control 30% of participants while 10% make themselves irrelevant, at least in the short term, by pursuing experiments uh, or, or utopian ideas or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, we're likely to return to that. So I think large chunks of the Republican uh, coalition care about low taxes and a hot stock market and a successful economy as they define a successful economy. That's a debated term, I understand. You know, and various other policy issues. Um, and if those, if the pursuit of those issues becomes inconsistent with the pursuit of these sort of more identitarian forms of conservative politics, then I don't think that coalition will hold together very well for very long. Trump was both a, a, a sui generis candidate and one who seized a sui generis moment. So my hopefulness is that things will return to something closer to normal, which does not mean outcomes that I'll necessarily like, uh, but outcomes that derive from a process whose stability and legitimacy are sufficient that I'm not staying up at night worrying about whether they'll continue into the next day. Of course, if you prefer to be pessimistic, you might consider that starting in the 1960s, the degree of chaos has increased every cycle. That there was, you can make the argument that what was artificial was the period of stability from the 1940s uh, until, let's say, the 1970s. And then at least in the late 70s and early 80s, we started to see things cycle out of control, in which case we, sh we should expect a kind of positive feedback situation with ever-increasing chaos over the next four years. Uh, and presumably the United States will divide into multiple countries which will be at war with each other uh, before you've finished graduate school. But I really like my version better. And in the absence of this positive evidence one way or the other, this is Pascal's wager, I'm going to wager on things stabling out um, and people pursuing their political interests in more traditional ways. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schwaber, and sharing all your amazing information and teachings. So thank you again. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.